Really good job tonight, Mike. Thank you. Looks like he must have done this once or twice or ten times before. Yeah, anyway. Appreciate so much the songs that you chose as well as the spirit in which you led them. It certainly was uplifting to all of us as we sang these songs together with one another. So uh, on Sunday mornings, probably a month back and then moving forward, I was sharing with you lessons concerning the, the authority of the scriptures and the, the fact that your scriptures or the Bible is just this amazing book, this incredible book. And so I spent one week talking to you about an overview of the Bible, and I kind of broke down the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament and hit some of the highlights of the sections of the Bible itself. And then the following week, or maybe it was the week after did a sermon on uh, baptism, then the following uh, week after that, we talked about Bible languages and, and translations. And in doing so, I, what I was trying to do is kind of get us locked into your Bible and knowing that here is a, a book that has been recorded and written by 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years, and yet there's this incredible consistency that is there, and that it is written in words or in a language that has been locked in time, and that it's almost like it's been put into granite, and so it cannot be changed over time. It's not changed by eras. It's not changed by culture. What it meant back in the bygone years, you know, back in the B.C.s as well as in the early A.D.s of the Old Testament and the New Testament is what it means today in the 21st century. And so you can have confidence in your Bible because of it. And in the midst of, I think, probably the second lesson on translations and things like that, I, I mentioned to you about studying your Bible and the need to study your Bible. And, and I said to you that there are really three steps to studying the Bible that are very simple. And so I thought what we might do this evening is I'm going to share with you those three set, steps, and we're going to do a little bit more of a deeper dive into them. You see, I believe that probably one of the most noble things, one of the most noble pursuits of a Christian, or any man for that matter, is to embark on the quest of getting to know God better, coming to know him in a more intimate kind of way. You have a Bible, not just so that you can gather a lot of information, okay, but you have it because God is wanting to draw close to you. This is his means of of sharing himself with us. And so we have the Bible that has been given to us that allows God to speak to us. And then, we, of course, we have prayer that allows us to speak back to, to God. And so the, the quest is, is one that is incredible. The problem is that when it comes to the Bible, there are many people that have a lot of opinions about God. When we're trying to find who God is and try to understand more about him and his ways, people have lots of opinions about God. But what you'll find out is that a lot of the opinions about God are really not based upon fact. It's based upon maybe a preconceived idea or a preconceived thought about what God is about. Maybe they have went through the Bible in maybe a kind of a smorgasbord fashion where maybe they've heard someone talk about God and so they've opened it up and they've read a piece here and a piece there and, and as a result of just looking at just pieces there, smorgasbord style, they think they know God when in reality uh, they may not know that much about what God is about. And I used an illustration of sometimes people approach the Bible like they do a car manual. You buy a car, you have this manual that is given to you that tells you all the ins and outs about that vehicle that you have. And yet very few people uh, read the car manuals. We don't read a car manual until a red light comes on the dash. And now we know we got a problem with the car, so we go back to the index and try to find where that section is. And then we turn to that page to find out what is the red light 
about? Well, sometimes people, they study their Bibles in that same kind of fashion. And the result of that is, is that we know something about God, but we really don't come to know God in an intimate kind of, of way. Well, you have passages of Scripture like Romans 1 and verse 20 that says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That is, God exists. And that's a great passage of Scripture, but it doesn't help you to understand God. It tells you that there is a God, that there is this higher power that created the world and everything that is in it, but it doesn't help you to understand what makes God tick. It doesn't tell you about his character. It doesn't tell you about his heart. It doesn't tell you about his intentions. It doesn't tell you about his plans that he has for mankind and how we can, you know, how we can navigate through this life and live lives that are abundant. You know, Jesus said that he came that we might live life and or that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly, not only in this age right now, but in the age to come. It's an eternal kind of thing. And so the more we can come to understand God, the more intimate and, to, and the more we're able to tr put our trust in him and to go to him in times not only just of being happy, but even in times when we are we are frightened. And so this Bible communicates God's heart. It communicates his plan for mankind. Now, there are a number of ways that you can study the Bible, okay? And over the years, uh, for me, you know, I've learned numerous ways to go about it. But I think that there are really three simple ways to, to know about God, okay, and to understand the scriptures. And the first one is this. Step one is, is what I would call observation, Observation is, it tells you what a, a, what a passage is saying. Then there is interpretation, that's step two. That tells you what the passage means. And then there's application. Application tells you what that passage is about and how you can apply it to your life. You're not just reading it now, you're reading it in order that it can make a change in your life. So three really simple steps, observation, interpretation, and an application. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend the remainder of our time talking about these three steps. And under each of these three steps, there are a number of other steps that go along with them, but hopefully it will give you some ideas to think about as you open up your Bibles and as you study with them. And so let's begin with step one. Step one is observation. Probably the most important part of, of studying your Bible and reading your Bible is uh, observation. Uh, uh, getting into the text, what is said, uh, how it is said. And so you can look for things. And so here are some things you can look for as you begin to open your Bible and read from it and start to make some observations about it. One of the first things is terms, not words, but terms. And by, by terms, terms are, are, are words that are used in a specific way or in a particular context. Take, for instance, the word trunk. Well, the word trunk can be used in a lot of different ways. You can use the word trunk and you can say, well, we can be talking about the, a, a car's trunk. Or we could be talking about a storage box that we would call a trunk. Or we could be talking about a tree and call it a trunk. We can be talking about an elephant and say it has a trunk. And when you put words along with it, that sets the context and it helps you to know what we're talking about. So if you were to read the tree that, had, that this tree had a very large trunk, 
Well, now we know how that word trunk is being applied there. Or we saw an elephant at the zoo and the elephant had a very long trunk. We know that it's talking about that tubey looking thing that's off the front of its face, okay? So, you know, so all of a sudden we move from just having words now to having terms, and terms are so important. Number two is structure. When you talk about structure, your Bible is broken down not in the original language, but in your modern-day translations in terms of paragraphs. Paragraphs are, are really nothing more than complete thoughts, okay? And if you were to open your Bible, say if you were to have a Bible like mine, okay? And this Bible here is called a single-column, side-column reference Bible. Some of you may have double columns with a center column reference, okay? And the references are, you know, they're the ways, words in which are terms that you might see there that you can, you can um, find another passage of Scripture that are, are like that. But your Bible is broken, broken down into paragraphs. For instance, my Bible is broken down into paragraphs. The way I know there are paragraphs that I've come upon that are a different thought or a changed thought is usually there is either an indent or in my Bible, the, the, the number is, is written in bold, okay? Or if you were to say, take this Bible here, which was my mother's Bible, which I preached from this morning, well, it also has paragraphs, and it has paragraph titles. So it has a title here that, remember I preached this morning from um, Acts, the 16th chapter, and we were going down through that chapter, and I was sharing with you kind of an overall view. Well, there are paragraphs in it, and so in verse 22, they'll read from 22 down to 34, it says, Paul and Silas imprisoned. Okay, so it, so it gives you a complete thought that is a multiplicity of, of verses, but it's made in a paragraph. And some of your Bibles are just looks like a paragraph that is set up in, 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 the, in the first place. So you have Bibles that are written with complete thoughts, broken down into titles, or broken down into paragraphs. And if you have a, a Bible like one of mine called an inductive study Bible, well, then it has paragraphs that are broke down, and it has a line above it, but it doesn't tell you what the title is. So I get to write my own title. I get to write what I think the paragraph title is. I can tell you what the chapter title is, the paragraph titles are, and I can do so because it helps me to remind myself of what the Bible is all about or what it's trying to say. And then you have, um, then you have Bibles, or then you have a, a means of studying by terms of uh, emphasis or emphases. Uh, this is another way that the author illustrates or demonstrates something that is something that is important, and it has a specific topic or topics that is involved there. For instance, uh, turn your Bibles over to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, I think, is um, it's interesting the, the way it it breaks itself down. Uh, because it has some words that are emphasized throughout this psalm. This is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it has words that are used over and over again, and yet they have they are synonymous, and yet they have a nuance that makes them different from a one another, but they emphasize certain things that are that are devoted to a specific topic. So listen to Psalm 119. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. They have ordained thy 
precepts that, the, that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep thy statutes. Then I will not be ashamed when I look upon thy commandments. So did you see there are certain words that have an emphasis that is there that draw our attention. And so when you go down through the Psalms, you'll see the word commandments that are used 21 times, statues used 21 times, ordinances used 13 times, testimonies 23 times, the laws used 21 times, precepts 20 times, um, the word 39 times. And so if you say, what is the book of Psalms about? Well, the answer to that is, it's about God's law, God's word, God's testimonies, God's uh, statutes that he has, been, that he has given uh, to us. Then sometimes as you're doing observation, you can look for repetition. An example of repetition would be um, 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And of course, we know that that's the chapter of love, Right. Well, in 13 verses, Paul uses the word love nine times. So that tells you that when you're reading down through that section of Scripture, you know what that, what that chapter is about because of the repetition that is there. And there are other passages that are just like that. For instance, even like Psalm 119. Well, Psalm 119 is broken down into sections, and in those sections, you'll see those repetitious words. You'll see laws and testimonies and, and statues used over and over again. That repetition tells you something about that, uh, that chapter. Relationships between ideas. If you pay close attention, for example, there are certain relationships that appear in the text. You might cause, call them cause and effect kind of passages. An example of that would be Matthew, the 25th chapter, and verse 21. That section of scripture there, you know, it starts off by talking about the ten virgins, and then it talks about the parable of the talents, or some call it the parable of the bags of gold. And then there will be the parable of the separation of the goats and, or the sheep from the goats, okay? But in verse 21, this one guy obviously had handled his talents or his bag of gold very well. And you see a cause and effect where Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Thou good and faithful servant, you did well at this, therefore I'm going to do this. And so as you read down through the scriptures, you can look for kind of a cause and effect thing that is found in the uh, scripture. And so it's showing a relationship between ideas. Then there are words like if or when. An example of that would be 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14. Listen to what it says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So again, you see the if and thens. If you do this, you get this. An example of that would be First um, uh, John 1 and verse 7. If you walk in the light, you have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus and cleanseth you of all sins. If when you do this is when you're going to get this. Okay, so that would be an, an example. Questions and answers. Who is the king of glory? 
the Lord, the strong and mighty. It's asking a question, and then he gives you the answer to that question. That was from Psalm 24 and verse 8. Or comparisons and, and contrasts. Um, the, um, the Sermon on the Mount is full of these. It's, it's full of all kinds of comparisons and, and contrasts. Uh, probably some that you can, you can think it was, uh, as Jesus said, you have heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you that if a woman looks upon a woman to lust after, he commits adultery in his heart. Okay, and so there is a contrast and a, a comparison. Or you have heard it said, but I say this. And you'll find, I mean, through the fifth chapter into the sixth chapter, you'll see those kinds of comparisons that are laid out. So that's example of, of some observation. Literary forms. When you talk about literary forms, you know, your Bible is written in lots of different kinds of forms. There are those that are called parables. Uh, there are, there's prophecy. The Old Testament might be thought of as prose in, in terms of Old Testament history. I'm talking about, you know, like um, uh, Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. That's wrote in prose. If you look at the Book of Acts, it's the history of the church. That's prose. You can think about poetry. That would be Psalms. You might throw wisdom literature in there with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of of of, of Solomon. Um, you have discourse. The discourse would be the epistles. Paul wrote like 13 of those discourses or those epistles. And so those are, are considered to be a discourse. And so when you're reading your Bible, it's probably good to, you know, to determine what kind of literature you are reading because not all literature in the Bible is exactly the same. And in knowing that, it helps you to read it maybe in a little bit different kind of, of way. Atmosphere. The author uh, has a particular reason or the author has a particular point that he is trying to drive at the audience that is reading it. For instance, if you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, then Matthew has a, 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 he has a purpose. And his purpose is to convince his readers, which are probably the Jewish readers of his day, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so you'll see over and over again where Jesus is talked about as being the king and a Messiah. And you'll read over again, I think like 63 quotations out of the book of Isaiah alone. Matthew's trying to convince you that he, Jesus is more than just a, a boy that was born in a manger. But this is the son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the king. Or if you're reading Mark, well, Mark is written to a Gentile mind and probably more so of a Roman mind. And so as you read through the book of Mark, you'll notice that he goes from one action thing to the next. Romans didn't care about fluff. They wanted action. And so he goes from one miracle to the next miracle to the next miracle to the next, next miracle in rapid fashion in the book of, of Mark. Or Luke Luke's has a point that he's trying to drive at as well as John. John is not like the synopsis. John... Well, okay, so you get what I'm saying. Each, they, have, they have a point that, that they're trying to drive at, and so you can find that by uh, looking at the atmosphere. What is the, what is trying, what is the writer trying, the author trying to get across? Um, once you do that, then you can get into the WH questions. You guys know what the WH questions are? That's a when, what, where, why. 
And then some will say, okay, that's a how, but there's no W with how. So there's who, what, where, when. Who are the people that this passage is written to? Who's the audience that's receiving this? What's happening in the passage? What's happening around the people that are receiving this this, uh, letter here? Uh, Where is the story taking place? Where is it taking place? You know, is it in Macedonia? Is it in Asia? Uh, you know, where is it taking place? Is it taking place in a person's house? Is it taking place? Those kinds of things. When was it written? When was the time of the day, the year, the, the history? Uh, uh, when is the time? When is it? So when you ask those questions, the WH questions, it helps you to identify the atmosphere. In fact, I would say to you that if you, if you were to just say, take the book of Philemon, the book of Philemon, and say you didn't have access to a commentary where you could validate and you couldn't read an overview of what that, of what that short book was about. If you just start off by asking the who, what, where, when, why questions, you know, then you'll learn a whole lot. Who is it that's writing this book here? Paul identifies himself as the writer. Who is he writing it to? Well, he's writing it to uh, Onesimus about a guy by the name of, or he's writing to Philemon about a slave by the name of Onesimus. Uh, where was it written? You can find out by some of the things they send that it's in the church that's in Colossae. You see what I'm saying? You can find out a lot just by asking who, what, where, when, why questions. And if you read your read through, say, a book, and you go through and just read it one time looking for the who passages, of the who information, writing those things down. Then you read it a second time looking for the where questions. And then you read it a third time looking for the what questions. And you read it a third time looking for the other questions. When you do that, you will have read your Bible or a book. You would have read it like, what, five, six times? Generally, when I tell people to study is say, read through the Bible in one setting I mean, if it's a regular distance Bible, one setting, and then give the, what, what's your gut feeling? What's your just your general idea of what it's saying to you or it's saying? And that gives you the atmosphere of the book. That's one time reading it. If you read, read it for the who's, that's two times reading it. If you're looking for the where's, that's three times reading it. If you're looking for the what's, that's four times reading it. If you look for the why's, then that's, so you've read it now five times. So tell me, how are you going to know your Bible better? Are you going to know your Bible better by reading it one time through or reading it five or six times through and looking for specific things in it? I mean, you can get a lot of stuff out of the Bible in that kind of way. And so once you have got down to the WH questions, then you're ready to maybe bridge over to the second observation. And it's not as long as the first observation or the first, the first step. And the step that comes next after observation is interpretation. So what's interpretation? Interpretation is discovering the meaning of the passage. It's understanding the the author's main thought or his his ideas. And you can do that by uh, using what I call five C's. And the five C's would be, the first one would be context. What's the context of the passage? For instance, this morning, I preached a lesson to you out of Acts, the 16th chapter, okay? And we used the whole chapter, and we focused in as an immediate context, verses 22 down through 34, but we focused and dialed in on verse 25, that at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing, and the prisoners were listening to them. But for you to really get a, a better understanding or a better feeling for the book, what I did was, is I set the context for you. 
So I shared with you the context of Paul and Silas's uh, missionary journey and how they ended up from Asia Minor over into Macedonia and into Philippi it, itself. So I set for you the context. So I, I set up what I would call the broad context of how this passage that we're going to look at, verse 25, is going to be, and then the immediate context of it. You, you kind of get what I'm talking about? And so as you read your Bible, you want to read for context. You know, how does this passage sit in its natural place? Otherwise, if, you, if you're not careful, you can end up studying your Bible like a lot of people do, where I call it cherry picking or studying your Bible like you would with a helicopter. You come down and you pick this piece of passage out and move it over here. And oftentimes you do that just to prove a point rather than looking at the overall emphasis of the book itself. And so finding the context that you find the immediate context by the paragraphs just around that central idea that you're there, or you can get the broader context or the far-reaching context by going paragraphs before, paragraphs after, or maybe even a chapter before or a chapter after to get a broad context. So context is important. Cross-referencing. I mentioned that in this, in this particular Bible here, it's a center column with a side column reference, and there will be certain phrases that are used there that will have a letter A, B, C, D, E, F beside it. And over in the side column will be that letter E, for instance, and E will give me several passages that are like the one I just read about or a phrase that is there. And that is sometimes, when I was in a, a new Christian and didn't know much about anything, is I, I did a lot of cross-referencing to try to get a better grasp of some things that are there. The only warning that I would say to you there is be careful that not all words mean the same that they cross-reference. You know, one word here might not mean this word over here, but they're usually pretty good in terms of cross-referencing your, your Bible. Culture, you need to look at culture. So we're, there's, there's context, there's cross-referencing, and then there's culture. How does this passage sit in its culture? First, John, the fourth chapter, talks about the woman who goes to the well of Samaria, and she's gone there to draw water. What's the culture? Well, okay, so, uh, so when was the last time, Rhonda, when was the last time you went out and drew water? You know, we don't draw water, we turn faucets on. We drew water when I was like six years and seven, eight years old when I lived in Oklahoma out in the house where they didn't have running water, we had wells. And so you went and drew water there. But even then we didn't go out to a place to draw water like Jacob's well. So you kind of get a culture of what's going on, on there. Or Jesus over in John the 10th and 11th chapter, he is talking about being the door of the sheep. He's talking about being the good shepherd. Well, you know, most of us are not shepherds and things like that. So what does he mean when he talks about, I am the door of the sheep? Was there a door? that let the sheep in and out? Well, maybe, but maybe it was a stone, you know, walls that were made in a circle with an opening that was there and the shepherd laid across that door. And nothing went inside that door or that place and nothing came out unless the shepherd allowed it to happen. So when Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep, well, the culture of that time kind of tells you something about that. Or if you get over into 1 Corinthians 11 chapter and you read about women are wearing head coverings, well, what's that about? Because I'm looking at the audience and you women aren't wearing head coverings unless it could be the glory of your hair being your head covering. But the culture of that day was is that women wore, you know, they wore coverings on their head, probably. And men didn't. 
In fact, for men to do so was that's just something that you didn't do. And that's even kind of, well, not so much in the 21st century, but I can remember not all that long ago in the church when I was a baby Christian, been in there and people coming up and saying, you need to go over and tell that guy over there he needs to take his hat off because you don't wear a hat when you're in a building, especially when you're in a church building. Well, no, you go tell him. <laughs> but that's a culture kind of thing. So studying culture and then conclusion. Uh, having answered your questions for understanding by means of, of context and cross-reference and, and culture, you can make a preliminary statement of what this passage is, is meaning. Okay? Which leads to the third step. So observation, interpretation, and then application. And that's where you're going with all this. That's where you're heading with all this. There's no use preaching, for instance, sermons if you don't give people a way to make an application. We're not just trying to gather information. We want to get information that, that changes us. So we want our lives to change. We want to be obedient to God. We want to grow to be more like Jesus. And so after we have observed passages and interpreted passages and have a better understanding of it, then we want to apply those things to our lives. We want to make them real to our lives. And so how does the truth, how does it reveal or affect my relationship with God? What does it reveal about Jesus and affect my relationship with Jesus? What does it reveal about you and my relationship that I have with you and how I'm to treat you and how you are to treat me? What does it say about the adversary, the enemy that I have to, to, to go up against? And so observation and interpretation, it's all there in order to get you um, to get the word from your head to your heart and change, uh, to change the way you think, to change the way you speak and what you say to others, and to change what you do and where you go. That's what the scriptures are all about, and that's what makes this Bible absolutely transforming. It's a book that is to transform who we are and what we are. And so that's why I said to you at the very beginning, there is no more noble pursuit in the world than understanding God, to know who he is, to know his plan for you, and to know that he wants, he wants you to know him. Because he knows you, I can tell you that right now. He wants you to know him. And in knowing him, he'll change who you are from the inside out. You know, today in our world, we're saying, what's going on in our world? What's happening in our world? Why are we having mass shootings? Why are we having so many social uh, division? What's going on there? And the answer is, is because uh, people just don't know this, know the God of this book. He's the answer for all the social ills we have. We'll always have evil people with me, I I with us, I believe, regardless of what this book says or anyone else says. But I'm going to tell you this, this book will change people. God can change people. Jesus can change people. The Holy Spirit can change people. And all you have to do is look at your own life. And you'll see how he's changed you. So you have an incredible, amazing book in your lap or on your electronic device. See, I'm, see, I have one of those too. You know, you know I kind of stay armed with these things here. So uh, let me encourage you just to spend time in your book, in your Bible. I think, I think a couple of weeks ago I said, you don't have to do 40 minutes. 
Take 15 minutes, carve out 20 minutes of your life and spend some time getting to know your Lord. He'll bless your life. The lesson is yours. Your response is yours, whatever it might be. Why do we stand and sing and give you opportunity?